right. That's, <laughs> that's, quite, that's quite a welcome. Um, and I feel totally surplus to requirements after Pask telling his story. Just now, I, I feel like getting in the car, going back to Eastbourne, and just say, just, just listen to Pask. Uh, wasn't, that, wasn't that awesome? That was just incredible. Um, so if, uh, if I completely bomb, that's fine, because this, uh, this meeting has been uh, insanely good. Um, so yeah, I'm Glenn. I am uh, Emma's husband. I'm Ruby's dad, and uh, I live in Eastbourne. Um, on the south coast of the UK, so uh, it's the retirement capital of England. It's it's the sort of place where all the shopfront windows are bifocal, just so you can uh, feel at ease. Um, it's also known as the Sunshine Coast, which my Australian family thinks is hilarious. Uh, <laughs> My Australian family calls it the Unshine Coast, because that's... that's uh, but I, I grew up in Australia. I've lived half my life in the UK, give or take the odd deportation. But uh, mainly, <laughs> true story, but that's for another time. And um, that's why I kind of sound a little bit half and half. I sound like a convict to all the English, and I sound like a pom to all the Australians. It's the worst of all worlds. It's terrible. Uh, but, uh, so I just, I just want to bring to you what I think is the best news in the world. It's the best news that the world has ever heard. It's the greatest love story that has ever been told or ever could be told. It's the most helpful story. It's the greatest adventure tale. And it's true. Uh, and it's the sort of story that transforms Pasch. It's the sort of story that transforms my life. It's the sort of story that's transformed hundreds of lives in this room. And, uh, and maybe it can transform yours. Do you want to hear it? Okay. Here's my way in. Let me ask you a question. What is life? Is life a tragedy or is it a comedy? What do you think? What is life? Is it a tragedy or is it a comedy? Now, let me give you some, some definitions because I'm not asking you the question, is life a barrel of laughs? Because uh, if you've lived for any length of time, you know that life is not a barrel of laughs. Uh, the definition of tragedy and comedy uh, is, is classical. So if, if you studied English literature, for instance, you'd be told that the, the, what makes a story a tragedy is not so much how much pain is in the story, it's actually about the shape of the story. So Dante, who wrote uh, The Divine Comedy back in the Middle Ages, he said that a tragedy is a story that begins in joy and ends in pain. Okay, so it's shaped like a frowny face. That's how you can remember it. Okay, you travel up in the world, you enjoy your brief moment in the sun, and then you're over the hill and you tumble down, and the end is the grave. Oh dear, that's a tragedy. So you might think of uh, Shakespearean tragedies, for instance. Uh, Shakespearean tragedies actually have some jokes in them, apparently. Um, I, I've been told this on, on very good authority. My, my English uh, teacher at high school would tell me that, uh, you know, at this moment, Hamlet is telling a joke. And I just wrote it down in my exercise book. At this point, Hamlet is telling a joke, apparently. And, uh, and I put that in the exam and I passed. It's, it's, it's not because your hands and thighs are so leathery from being slapped together by the end of Hamlet that you realize that there are jokes. But Hamlet is full of adventure, it's full of moments of joy and levity and all that kind of stuff, but at the end of Hamlet, the stage is just heaving with the dead, isn't it? And if you're in the audience, you're trying to see whether the actors are still breathing or not after their massive sword fights, but it ends with a funeral, so you know it's a tragedy. On the other hand, Shakespeare's comedies, how do they end? What's the classical comedy ending in a Shakespearean comedy? What is it? 
marriage, a wedding, that's right, that's right. Some of you are a little bit, uh, <laughs> you're not quite sure that the wedding could possibly be the happy ending. If, if so, the, there are other courses that they run here that you can, you can go to. But, but classically speaking, when the guy and the girl finally get together, it's wedding, it's joy, it's feasting, and they lived happily ever after. Shakespearean comedies are not called comedies because you've been laughing so much all the way through, but, but it's actually the shape of it. So whereas Dante, Dante said that a tragedy begins in joy and ends in pain, smiley face, well, a comedy turns the frown upside down, and you go down into a pit, and it begins in pain, but you finish on a high. It ends in joy. Right? So down into the valley of the shadow of death you go. And there might be all sorts of epic pain and struggle and fight and sacrifice and suffering. But at the end, there's a wedding, there's singing, there's feasting joy. That's, that's what a comedy is. Okay. So now that you've got your definitions in place, let me ask the question again. What is life? Is it a tragedy? Is it a comedy? What do you reckon? Hmm. Hmm, now you're, oh, is it a tragic comedy? Oh, is, is it a Samuel Beckett play? Is it a farce? Is it, I don't know. What is life? Here's my contention. If you leave the Bible out of things, and if you forget all the Jesus stuff, and you look starkly at this world, you have to conclude that life is tragic, right? You kind of have to, don't you? Because what is life? Leave aside all the Bible stuff and the Jesus stuff. What is life? Well, you are a biological survival machine. You're a wet robot, okay? And you're clinging to an insignificant rock. You're hurtling through a meaningless universe towards eternal extinction. But Starbucks have a new, uh, a new flavored latte, so that's really nice, isn't it? And, you know... We're renovating the kitchen, so that's, that's nice. And we're going somewhere nice on our holidays. You know, we're going up in the world, and we're going to enjoy all that this world has to offer. We're going to have our brief moment in the sun, right? But then we're over the hill, aren't we? And then we start tumbling down into the grave. And our lives do not finish with weddings, do they? Our lives end with a funeral. So if Shakespeare was writing the story of your life, what would they call it? Mm. Happy New Year, everybody! <laughs> right? It's tragic. It's a tragic shape to life. But actually, the world wants to sell you the tragic shape of life as though that's a good thing. You know, you go out into the world and you're being sold to constantly. And you're being told you need to get one up on Everybody else, you need to climb in this world and grasp and grab and scratch and take and have for yourself all the great experiences and the achievements and the performances. And you're being sold to constantly. And you're being told that, yes, we do live in this tiny blip of, of, of time and space and we are headed towards the grave. But, but here, here's a new anti-aging cream, Right? Yeah, I was just thinking about this this morning, actually. I, I, I went past a, a, a place, a, a display case that had anti-aging cream on it. And I just thought to myself, that is a very bold attempt, isn't it? It's like someone comes up with a product and they say, I'm going to reverse the aging process. <laughs> like, how did, how did that go down when they, when they were trying to pitch the new product? I'm going to reverse the implacable arrow of time. And you're like, how are you going to do that? We've developed some kind of cream. <laughs> really? Anti-aging cream? That's our only hope, isn't it? Right? 
It's bizarre, isn't it? But we're so afraid of getting to the end of the story. Because we know that it's a tragic shape. We know it ends in the pit. And so we try to stay towards this end of the story. And we've got a massive cult of youth. Don't you think? Massive cult of youth. All these magazines and the news agents, you know, they're, they're just plastered in 17-year-old models who look like 12-year-old girls who are trying to sell you the anti-aging cream. And you think, what's going on? And then at the other end of things, we, we never hear about the elderly. You know, I, 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 I kind of flick through my Facebook feed, and, and I never hear about the aged, the elderly, only when they act like young people. Right, so you'll, you'll read a story about a 70-year-old who runs the marathon. And the story is like, isn't this amazing? A 70-year-old acts like a 20-year-old. So the 70-year-old is worth something if they act like a 20-year-old. That, that's the only time we have any place for the elderly. Like traditionally, we thought that the elderly have age and experience and wisdom to pass on. And we've, we've risen in the presence of the aged and we've given them all respect. And these days, it's the, the, the aged and the elderly are out of sight, out of mind, because we don't like the way the story ends. And we don't like being reminded of it. We live in a world that has bought the tragedy and we live tragic lives. I live a tragic life, right? Naturally, when I get up in the morning, what do I want to do? I want to climb and grab and scratch and take and get and accumulate and get on top. That's what I want to do. And you know, when, when, when Pask talked about hatred filling him, he, he's just being honest, right? Some of us feel that hatred in a very hot, molten lava kind of a way. Some of us feel the hatred in a kind of a frozen rage kind of a way. That's just a temperamental thing. We all feel angry because we're all trying to get on top. And this guy's trying to stop me. How do I feel about this guy? He's trying to stop me, get on top, right? Do I cherish him and love him and thank God for him? No. And, and this person, she's, she's holding me back from where I need to be, right? How do I feel about this person? Do I cherish her and honor her and love her? No, no. What do we feel like as we climb and grab and scratch and take and ascend and climb the hill? We feel angry, don't we? And we, we might fall for any number of addictions. It doesn't have to be a substance, but maybe it is a substance. Because maybe you feel like you've just got to get and grab and take everything you can and enjoy this brief moment in the sun and you don't want to tumble down into the grave, but you're just addicted to that thing that's going to make life work. We all get angry. We all get addicted. What's the answer? Well, the answer is to, to move from the tragedy to the comedy. Because there is one person who's offering you the comedy. One person. I honestly don't think anyone else can offer you the happily ever after. And I've done a lot of searching, okay? I've, I've done a lot of conversation and reading about the worldviews that are out there, the religions that are out there. And I always have a question for a different religion or a worldview or a life philosophy. I, I just ask these two questions. I say, is there any hope for Glenn in the future? Is there any hope for me, for the, for the particular me that I am? Is there any hope for, for this body going forwards? Is, is there any hope for me in the future in your worldview? And then the second question is, is there any hope for planet Earth in your worldview? Any, any hope? Or are we biological survival machines clinging to an insignificant rock hurtling through a meaningless universe towards eternal extinction? Or 
Are we just meant to, at the end of all things, dissolve into the ocean of being like a drop of water in the sea? And then that's that. Is that, is that the hope? And I, I go around and I ask different religions and philosophies and worldviews, is there hope for these bodies in this world? And you know, you know the answers that I get? I get no, 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 yes. Oh, who is it that's saying yes? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. I mean, it's true. I mean, you, you, can, you can do the comparative survey of these different worldviews. You can. But when you ask the question, is there any hope for this body, for this world? Only Jesus has it. Only Jesus is giving you the comedy, right? Does that give you some kind of incentive for looking into the Jesus story? Right? You, you might not yet think it's true, right? But at least it's, it's worth investigating, don't you think? If everyone else is selling you a tragic tale and Jesus is telling you the comedy, you might not yet think it's true. Okay, will you at least investigate it? Here's your one shot at the comedy, right? The, the story that the Bible tells is not the climb up into self-actualization and then tumble down into the grave. The, 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 the Christian story begins from on high, comes down into the valley of the shadow of death, and then rises up again to feasting joy. That's, that's the Christian shape of things. Do you want to see it? Do you want to see how it works? Let's have a look. On, on the screen, there's a, a song that was doing the rounds in the first century that the Apostle Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, he picked up this song that everybody was singing. It was sort of you know, number, number one on the iTunes worship charts. Okay, And the Apostle Paul loved the song, and he put it into one of his letters to a church in Greece. And here's how the song goes. Notice the shape that Paul is describing. Notice it's the smiley face, down and then up. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you notice the shape? Notice how we begin on high, descend to the depths, and then finish on the heights again? Here's how Paul wants to tell you about the grand comedy. And once again, this is the greatest love story the world has ever seen. You, you, you could not come up with a greater love story because you could not come up with a higher person who descends to a deeper depth for you. You just couldn't, right? You couldn't. You could not invent a story that is more loving than this story. You could not invent an adventure that was more epic than this tale. You just can't. It's actually impossible. Should we have a look at it? Let's begin on high. In the beginning, we've got, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So this story begins before the world began. The story of Jesus begins before the world began. Did you know that about Jesus? I mean, he didn't just invent a religion, okay? He invented the universe. That, that, is, that is the Christian understanding. 
there he is before the world began. It's a funny thought, isn't it? Before the world began, can we, you know, if you just hit rewind on the history of the world and you keep hitting rewind back before there are people, back before there are planets, back before there are protons, what is there? Well, there is Jesus. He's there, right? And he is equal to his father, but he doesn't grasp at that equality because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and there they are, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons united together in love. We've got a family of light and life and love. That's where we've come from. Did you know that's where we've come from? We've come from love. We've been shaped by love. We are determined by love. We are invited into love. This is, this is a story unlike anything the world has ever known. We've come from love. Wow. But there we have Jesus, the Son of God, filled with the Holy Spirit. There is this fountain of light and life and love coming from the Father, crashing down onto the head of the Son in the joy of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus did not want to grasp at life. He did not want to use his godness to his own advantage. Right? He did not have tragic thinking. What is Jesus like? He is the sort of God who, being filled, then pours himself out. And so what do we see? Because he's not the grasping type, he's not the using for his own advantage type, instead, what does he do? He makes himself nothing, takes the very nature of a servant. He's made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus... Because of his godness, he decides to stoop and serve and suffer and bleed and die. Isn't that amazing? I used to read these verses in totally the wrong way. I used to read it as though Paul was saying, Jesus, in spite of all his godness, decided to become a servant. I used to read it like that. I think a lot of Christians read it like that. They're kind of like, Jesus, in spite of the fact that he's God, he decides to try on service for 33 years. Isn't that good of him? He decides to you know, leave the palace and just pretend to be a pauper for a little bit to see how the other half live. Is that what you think Jesus did? It's not what Jesus does, right? It's not in spite of all his godness he serves. It's because he is in very nature God. Therefore, he serves. What kind of God are we talking about, right? A servant king, right? Because he is in very nature God's. Therefore, he serves. If God is a fountain of life and light and love, where do you see the fountain expressed? You see the fountain expressed when it's poured out, right? And where do you see Jesus at his most divine? You see him as he pours himself out in service, as he pours himself out through his life, and as he pours himself out on that cross with every drop of his blood. As you see Jesus pouring himself out on that cross, you've never seen anything so divine, ever. I don't know what your picture of God is this morning or this afternoon. What's, what's your picture of God as you come to church on a Sunday? I've got friends who have different pictures of God. They, they, I've got one friend who just imagines just a, a comforting hand on the shoulder. Lots of, lots of people seem to think about an old grandfatherly figure with a, with a beard. and Some people think of a Thor-like kind of war gods with a thunderbolt ready to hurl. And What's the Bible's picture of God? You, you cannot go beyond the cross as a picture of God. According to the Bible, you've never seen anything as divine 
as Christ Jesus, pinned to a piece of wood, bleeding his own heart's blood even for his enemies. And you think, is that what it looks like to be God? What does it look like to be God? I once preached a sermon on that topic in, uh, in Eastbourne, actually. It was a, it's this church I, I don't usually go to, but uh, they decided to put on a guest kind of uh, meeting, just, just a bit like this one, actually, and, and they were doing some advertising for it, and they asked, what's, what's the topic that you're going to speak on, Glenn? And I said, my title is, what does it look like when God shows up? And uh, they said, oh, that'll, that'll help for the publicity, thank you very much. And I didn't think any of it, anything of it, really, and during the week... Different friends came to me and they said, Glenn, have you, have you seen the publicity they've done for this, this church where you're going to speak? And uh, I said, no, why? They said, you really need to see the publicity. And uh, I didn't think anything of it. I just kind of brushed it off. And, and uh, <laughs> sure enough, I show up on the Sunday morning. It's a big billboard outside the church. And uh, the topic, what does it look like when God shows up? And a big picture of me next to it. <laughs> <laughs> Would have been a tremendous disappointment for people. You know? <laughs> what does it look like for God to show up? Right here, people. <laughs> and yet you open up the Bible and forever Jesus is saying that he is what God looks like. Oh, wow. Who says that? Who comes to planet Earth and says, you know, if you want to know what God looks like, keep looking right here, people. Right? That's, that's bizarre. And yet Jesus says it on every page of the Gospels. And supremely, what it looks like to be God is him giving his life away for the world. Because if God is a fountain, where do you see the fountain? You see the fountain when it's poured out. I don't know what your picture of God is, but for me, here's my picture of God. It's Jesus, arms wide open to the world, going to hell and back even for his enemies. That's who, that's who God is. Is that, is that the kind of God you believe in? Now, this morning, you might be here as a guest and, and you're like, well, I don't really believe in God. That's okay. Which God don't you believe in? Like, describe. Describe to me the God that you don't believe in. And when I ask that question of friends, they usually kind of say, ah, kind of distant individual, beard, I believe, thunderbolt, ready to hurl, and, you know. And what do I say? I say, well, that sounds like Thor. <laughs> like, I don't believe in Thor. Can I introduce you to the God who would pour himself out with every drop of his blood? John Stott was a, uh, an author of uh, 50 books back in the 20th century, a, a great Christian man. And uh, he wrote this about what it is that persuaded him that Jesus was Lord. And especially when you look around at a world that is full of suffering and death, John Stott wrote this. He said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I've had to turn away, and in my imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. Which God don't you believe in? 
If you're an atheist, we might find all sorts of agreement on the God that you don't believe in. We'll probably find the God that you don't believe in, I don't believe in either. But what about this God? What if, what if Jesus is what God looks like? Tell you what, if Jesus is what God looks like, I'm in. I'll jump in with both feet. If the God of this world is really the kind of God who would pour himself out, I'm in. What about you? Do you think? Because this really is the greatest love story ever told. This really is the, the one who is highest becoming lowest for you and me. You know, you know that the Bible is a romance? You know that? It, it really is. Like from the, from the first sentence of the Bible, it sets you up from the romance. You know, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The word for heavens is masculine. The word for earth is feminine. You know how in some languages, different nouns take different genders? They're called romance languages. Well, the Bible is, is, is written in romance languages. And in Hebrew and in Greek and actually in all the romance languages that you know. I'm sure there are many romance languages that people in this room know. Think of the word for heaven. It'll be masculine. Think of the word for earth. Not the word for world, the word for earth. It'll, it'll be feminine. Because actually, on the, in the first sentence of the Bible, you're meant to look at heaven and earth, masculine and feminine. You're meant to sit back and say, those two should get together. <laughs> you're meant to see them as, as ones who are intended for one another. And by the end of the first page of the Bible, you've got Adam and Eve as icons of heaven and earth. And they're told that they're meant to get together to be fruitful and multiply. It's this grand romance. You read through the Old Testament, and God keeps saying to his people, don't be unfaithful to me. Be faithful to me. Don't be adulterous to me. He keeps on using language like, don't commit adultery on me. And you're like, are we meant to be married to God? Yeah, apparently. Then you get to the New Testament, and here comes Jesus, and he describes himself as the great bridegroom. And the Apostle Paul starts writing all these letters throughout the New Testament, and he's basically saying, yeah, Jesus is like the husband, and we are like the, the bride, and he gives himself for us so that we can be one forever. And you get to the end of Revelation, and you know what you see? You see a wedding, and you see heaven come down to get married to earth. Literally, in the picture language of, of Revelation, you finish with a wedding. You're like, hallelujah, finally, there is a comedy out there. Your life does not have to end with a funeral. Your life can end with a wedding. If you get swept up into this story, because in this story, here we are in our tragedy. Here we are in a pit of our own making. It's full of darkness and death and disconnection. And you think, why are we in darkness and death and disconnection? Why, why is the world full of addiction and anger? Why? Well, the Bible says that you and I, we've turned from the light of God. And when you turn from light, you go into darkness, right? We've turned from love. And when you turn from love, you go into disconnection and anger. When you turn from life, you turn into death. So here we are in a pit of darkness and death and disconnection. But what does the God of light and life and love say to those in a pit of darkness and death and disconnection? This God says, your pit will be my pit. Your darkness will be my darkness. And your debts will be my debts. I love that about Pasch's story. Part of how God is redeeming his story is in the paying off of actual debts. Such a picture of what God actually does. We are full of debt. Having turned from God, we are full of spiritual debts. But when you love someone, what do you do? Well, you might actually jump into the pit with them, stand shoulder to shoulder and say, your debts will become my debts. It's kind of what happens in, in marriage, in the great romances. You know, you know the story of the prince marrying the pauper? 
What happens when the prince marries the pauper? Well, all her debts go to him and all his riches go to her. That's what happens in a marriage. You share everything. When I got married to my wife, we said these vows as, as we exchanged rings. We stood at the front of a church and we said, all that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. And as we said that, literally there were sniggers in the congregation. All our friends who knew us knew that we had absolutely nothing to offer each other. <laughs> Except student loan repayments. You know? <laughs> it wasn't polite church laughter either. It was like, ha! <laughs> it's like, here, honey, you have my debts. And they said, no, you have my debts. And like, oh, well, just merge debt. That's all we did. <laughs> what about this, though? What about the great love story? The Prince of Heaven comes to marry us, paupers. You know what? You, you say to him, all that I am I give to you, all that I have I share with you. What's that? That's your darkness, your death, your disconnection, your debts. You give them to Jesus. What does he do with them? He absorbs the debt. He pays off the debt. Why is he on that cross, right? Why is he dying on that cross? He's paying off the debt of his bride. That's what he's doing. It's the greatest love story. And then he rises up from the dead, and he says to you and me, and all that I am I give to you, and all that I have I share with you. What's that? Man, well, you get his father as your father? You get his spirit as your spirit? You get his happily ever after as your happily ever after? And best of all, you get him for free and forever. Do you want Jesus? Do you want this lover of your soul who plunged down into the pit, who took your tragedy on the cross so you can have his comedy? See, the story doesn't end with Jesus on the cross, does it? I, I love in verse 9, it says, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus comes down into our death, and he punches a hole through death, and he comes out the other side. You know, when, when Jesus died on the cross and then rose again, it's not like he just dipped a toe into death and said, oh, I'm not so sure about that, and came back out, right? He absolutely crashes through death and comes out the other side, immortal forever, and says, come my way, right? Now, his way is a way of walking through the valley of the shadow of death, because it's a comedy, right? And the comedy goes down before it goes up. His way is not for you to now continue in your tragic way of climbing, grabbing, scratching, taking. His way is not to continue in that selfish life. His way is to keep on going down into the, the pattern of life of service and sacrifice and suffering with him. But then if you put your hand in his hand, he pulls you through that and out into feasting joy. Jesus is, is like the, the needle that goes through the black shroud of death and comes out the other side. And if you are connected to him by faith, you are the thread. And you're pulled through on that same trajectory, through that death, and out into that immortal, glorious, bodily hope. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was showing us all what eternal life will be. The end of the Gospels, you get these snapshots of what life beyond, the, 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 the life beyond death looks like. And what do we see at the end of the Gospels? Jesus goes for long country walks with his friends. 
stays up late talking about the deep stuff of life. It's fishing with mates. It's barbecues on the beach. It's family and feasting and reconciliation and grace. And it's Jesus, our battle-scarred brother, face-to-face forever. That's the future. Are you in? Do you want to be connected to this? This is the future. Apparently, there's a great comedy, right? That down into the pit we go, but Jesus turns our tragedy into his comedy, and he says, put your hand into my hand. And and essentially, his message is to renounce the tragedy and embrace the comedy. That's That's his message to the world. Renounce that tragic way of living and embrace his comedy. He doesn't zap you out of the valley of the shadow of death so that you can enjoy spiritual ether in the ninth dimension. It's, it's, he joins you in the valley. And he says, now live out my comedy. Now, filled by my spirit, why don't you pour yourself out? Why don't you give? Why don't you sacrifice? Why don't you be the one who serves others? That's, that's good news, Right? To a world that only knows how to grasp and grab and scratch and take and climb. Jesus says, that's bad news. That that leads to anger. That leads to addiction. Leads to debt. It's a hell of a life to live. You don't want to get get stuck in that kind of life. You you do not want to get stuck in that tragedy. We all live forever. Don't get stuck in the tragic way of living forever. Jesus comes to the world and he just says, renounce the tragedy. Embrace the comedy. Say, Jesus, all that I am I give to you. All that I have I share with you. And hear him say to you, all that I am I give to you. All that I have I share with you. Walk through this valley of the shadow with Jesus and let him turn your tragedy into comedy. Do you want that? I'm going to pray a couple of prayers now. And prayer number one, anyone can pray in this room. Maybe you've been following Jesus for decades, okay? But you and I, we we are tempted to live a tragic kind of life, aren't we? Like, tomorrow morning, I'm going to wake up, and I'm going to want to grab and scratch and climb and take, and, you know, that's that's what I'm going to want to do, right? Do you want to renounce the tragedy again and embrace Jesus and his comedy again? That's prayer number one. Prayer number two is maybe you've never before considered that Jesus might be Lord. One day, the whole universe will declare it. And maybe this morning, this afternoon rather, maybe today you're saying that, oh yeah, Jesus is Lord. Whatever else I thought was Lord, no, He is Lord. And maybe for the first time, you want to embrace Him and His comedy and start walking with Him through this valley of the shadow and out into His happily ever after. Two prayers. Should we bow our heads and let me, let me lead you in these two prayers. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you show me the true nature of God. I praise you that you would stoop and serve and suffer and sacrifice for me. Thank you once again, Jesus. I'm sorry for living a tragic kind of life so often. 
Forgive me once again. Fill me by your spirit once again. And send me out embracing your comedy. Send me out as one who would serve others. One who would give myself for others. And may I know your smile as I do it. Amen. And prayer number two, if you want to call Jesus Lord, perhaps for the first time, Lord Jesus, thank you that you are Lord. I recognize that I live the, the selfish life of darkness and death and disconnection. I'm sorry. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for rising again. Come into my life. Fill me by your Spirit and walk with me through death and into your happily ever after. Amen. If you've prayed, especially that second prayer, 5th of February, you should be all over it. 5th of February, come along to Alpha or Beta. Come along to those courses. And if you've particularly prayed that second prayer, I'd love you to come and uh, shake me by the hand or perhaps the person who's invited you and just say, yeah, I've prayed that prayer. Tell people, because Christianity is not a solo sport, okay? It's a team sport. We do it together. Thanks so much for listening.